say and do here would be for your honor and for your glory. We pray that you would help us to see clearly uh, what it is that happened on the cross as you chose to lay down your life for us. We pray that we would see it afresh today, that we'd see the fullness of the good news of what you've done for us. Uh, We confess that as we open your word, that uh, as we seek to understand it and to see you more fully, we can't do any of this on our own. And so we ask that you would be the one who leads and guides and teaches us this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I don't know how many of you uh, remember. uh, It's it's funny how certain things you think didn't happen that long ago. And then I look up the date and I see how much, how far along uh, ago it was. But there was a school shooting. uh, It was 17 years ago, 2006. Uh, in Pennsylvania in an Amish schoolhouse. Maybe you remember this. A gentleman went into a one-room building schoolhouse and opened fire, uh, shooting 10 children, killing five of them, injuring the other five, and then turning the gun on himself. And if you remember that story, uh, like sadly we've seen in our country a lot, school shootings like that and those things happening, that one kind of stands out in the sense of it was in an Amish community and literally like in a one-room building type thing. Uh, but if you remember that story and what happened in it, uh, the story came out that this guy was obviously a very disturbed gentleman. He actually had a family. He had a wife and a couple of kids. Uh, his parents lived in the same area. And, uh, you know, just the evil of this and people were just overtaken, which you can imagine you see that happen and, and these young children are killed and all that goes with that. But if you remember in the story, what happened is that Amish community, including those that had lost children in the shooting rallied around the widow and the parents of the shooter. Uh, the, the whole community went to the shooter's funeral to support the parents, uh, went to support uh, the wife and kids, started bringing them meals. They did this within a day or two of the shooting happening. And all of a sudden, this story of horrific evil, of a school shooting and these young children being killed, suddenly became a story uh, about radical grace in the face of evil. And I was going back and I was kind of rereading some of the stories different times and what has happened even subsequently from that. But as I read this week, I came across this quote where it was from one of the families right two days after, right? The news trucks are there and they go to this funeral and what are you doing and what's happening? And the quote was, Christ forgave us, so we must in turn forgive. And that's what they did. And they rallied around this family and all of a sudden there was this, all these stories everywhere. And suddenly the story shifted in the weeks after, kind of like, well, what's going on there? And I remember, this is what I remember from it when it first happened and all that came with it, is a lot of people couldn't understand it. What are they doing? Why are they forgiving? Why are they going there and supporting them in this way? And all these kind of things. And there was a lot of like, you know, commentaries kind of on both sides and different things. But a lot of people couldn't come to understand what was happening. Why in the world would they do that in the face of this horrific action and evil and all that goes with it. And I think the reality is when you see that story and when you start to think about that, uh, it's hard for us sometimes to fathom, to really grasp the upside down nature of grace and forgiveness. It's hard to really get to it. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously said, I was joking, you can give a C.S. Lewis quote for just about everything. But C.S. Lewis said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And I think that's the truth, right? It's hard. And sometimes when we see grace 
truly undeserved merit when we come face to face with it, it's hard for us to get our arms around that. And I was thinking about apart from understanding who Jesus is and what he's done for us, it's really difficult to fully understand it, even as a believer. Even as someone who believes this and has put their faith in Jesus, sometimes in the face of horrific evil, it's hard to get to fathom. And so I want us to think about that. And I start there in this way, because oftentimes the way we see and experience the world looks very different through the lens of grace. And sometimes that's a battle to see that. And as I was thinking about the crucifixion narrative that we're going to look at today, Michael just read to you kind of a harmony of the gospels that's taking from all four parts to show us a fuller picture of what's happening. But as we look at that and think about that together, I want us to look at it two ways. The first way is I want us to kind of think about it through the way the world sees this scene unfolding. When I think about the, the, the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders and the people there and the onlookers and the way they see it. And they don't see it through the grace that's being extended. They don't see it through what Jesus is actually doing. But I want us to think about the way that looks to the watching world. And then secondly, I want us to turn our eyes to Jesus so that we see what is really happening here. And we can only truly see it through him and what he's doing and understand the fullness of it. And so let's start with what's happening and what it looks like to the world and the onlookers. It's very similar to the way these things look, like that shooting looks to the world apart from understanding the grace of God and what he's done for us. And so we start here in John chapter 19, 19 verse 16. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near a city or near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And so they put the name above on the crucifixion, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And it's written in these different languages as Jesus is crucified on the edge of the city. And so this is the edge of Jerusalem where everyone would pass by and see it as was common practice. And so maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Uh, Roman times in the first century under Roman rule, crucifixion was not rare. In fact, it was very common. Uh, it was something that they did quite a bit. Uh, you could go and look it up and see that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of crucifixions in about a 500 period at the height of the Roman Empire. Uh, it was something that historians believe kind of came into seeing it be common under Alexander the Great. But then the Romans took that and kind of perfected it. And I say perfected it in the sense of they got really good at it. They became very efficient at uh, crucifixions. And so they would do them in a very public place because they were showing you this is what happens when you cross Rome. This is what happens to people that go against the Roman Empire. But it was so brutal and it was so violent and it was torture is what it was, public torture to show that this is what happens when you cross Rome. But it was so horrific that it was actually illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was reserved for those that were insurrectionists against Rome. It was reserved for those that were not bowing down to Caesar. 
It's actually why when the religious leaders bring Jesus and they're trying to get him crucified, they bring him to Pilate and they're saying, crucify him. And the language they use, we talked about this last week in his trials, but it's why they talk about him being the son of God using that language. It's why they say there's no king but Caesar and he claims to be a king. They're using all of that language because they know that insurrection against Rome, if Jesus is claiming to be a king and he's going to lead a revolution, then that's what gets you crucified. And so that's exactly what they do. And so they put this sign and they hang it above Jesus to show publicly that this is what happens if you cross Rome. And so there Jesus hangs on the edge of the town where everybody comes through. It written in all the the common languages of the day so everyone can read and see what's happening. But here's the, the view I want you to get when you think about that. Every person that's walking by and the Roman government and all the people, this is just another crucifixion. This is another thing that happens to if you cross Rome and to everyone walking by, this looks like the ultimate and final defeat. The power of the empire always wins. And that's what this is saying to everyone that comes by. And that's what they're seeing, that this would-be Messiah has been crushed. Because remember, their understanding of the Messiah is he's going to be a revolutionary who's going to lead to overthrow Rome, and now he's being killed by the very oppressive force that they thought he was going to overthrow. And so this, to the watching world, looks like the ultimate defeat. But then I want you to turn your focus for just a second to the religious leaders, because similarly, they see it the same way. And so Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they mocked him saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And so you see the religious leaders now mocking Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And just as crucifixion stands as the ultimate defeat in the eyes of the Romans, you see the same thing with the religious leaders. They seem vindicated, right? They're gloating. We told you he wasn't the Messiah. We told you not to listen to him. All the things that they had been butting heads with Jesus about, it seems in their understanding that they were right. And so they stand at the foot of the cross and they mock him. Which is hard to fathom if you really stop and think about it. That here's Jesus, the only innocent man that ever lived, being brutally murdered. And they stand as the religious leaders that are supposed to be showing what God is like and mock this man. And they hurl insults at him and they tell him to come down. And if you're really trusting God, you would come down off the cross. The sad part is they've led them. It's we've been led to this place and this has happened because they were so threatened by who Jesus was. They were so threatened by his teaching with authority. They were so threatened by him talking about uh, the heart of the matter and not just outward compliance They were threatened because he stood up to their legalism and the way that they added rules and added things and they couldn't stand it. And so now here they are gloating over him being killed. 
And in fact, verse 43, it says, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And there's some irony in that statement if you stop and think about it. From what we know of what's actually happening with Jesus and what is going on. It says, if he trusts God, he wouldn't be suffering and he would come down. Here's the thing I want you to consider as the world watches what's happening on the cross with Jesus. That they're understanding that as Jesus is suffering because he's not trusting God. They can't fathom that this is God's plan. That Jesus is suffering precisely because he's trusting God. Because he's being obedient to what God planned. That he's taking our place and he's doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. They can't understand that. And so the only way in which they can see it is you come down off that cross and you show us that you're the king. You show us through power. You show us by overthrowing the Romans. You show us by getting down off of that cross. And they're missing the very heart of everything that's happening. And so they gloat over an innocent man being seemingly killed that preserves their power and their place. And so they stand there and they mock him because they cannot fathom the upside down nature of God's kingdom. And so here's the thing I want us to consider see here this morning is so what is really happening if that's what the watching world sees that's what the romans think that's what the religious leaders see it's what people see as they walk by what is really happening here and so we started two years ago walking through the gospels and we started in john chapter one in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god jesus is god and he comes and he dwells among us and we said jesus is the logos Right? The divine truth. The re- ultimate reality of how things are. And so when we turn and we look at the Logos, the divine truth, the Son of God, God incarnate, we then start to see what's actually happening here. And so Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. As they're, as they're hurling insults, as they're mocking him, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the soldiers mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And so as they continue to mock and they continue attack, as they see it as vindication for them being right and in their self-righteousness and all the things that are swirling around, they all have it backwards as Jesus begins to pray for their forgiveness. And we start to see what's actually happening here. What's really going on is Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, what they can't see. But what Jesus knows and what he's told his disciples and what he's been saying all along is this is a choice that he is placing himself here to be crucified on our behalf that we can find forgiveness. Two weeks ago, we saw as they come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter pulls out his sword and starts swinging and chopping ears off. And he says, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that right now I can call down legions of angels and end this? But it's that my father's will will be done that this is happening. And he tells Peter, this is the plan. I can end this whenever I want to end this. But I'm doing this so that I can offer you forgiveness. What he's, what he's praying right here in the midst of all of this. 
That's why he's here. And that's why he's doing what he's doing. And so Jesus is choosing to allow this to take place for our forgiveness. But then how does that happen? Why does that happen with him choosing to be crucified by the empire, the oppressive uh, forces that are overtaking the land, and he dies at their hands? How in the world does that do that? And if you look closely and you start to look at everything that the Bible says and you look at what's happening here, you start to get the, it starts to come into focus. And so look at Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloah, Eloah, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And so it says from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness comes over the land. That's from noon to three o'clock. And so there's a darkness that comes over the land. Something supernatural, I believe, was happening there for this darkness to be the way it was. And in that time, as it falls and what's going on, Jesus cries out and he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And those looking on and seeing this and hearing it, and of course, the religious leaders would get this. But what Jesus is doing is he is quoting from Psalm 22. It's the first line from Psalm 22, if you're not familiar with it. Actually, if you want to turn there in your Bible to Psalm 22, we're going to look at that together. You can find that in the Blue Bible on page 572. But Jesus is quoting from the first line of Psalm 22 as he, as he cries out, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And if you read the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, it says, Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And you hear that and you hear what he's saying and you see what the onlookers are saying and the way that they're they're uh, hurling insults and the things that they're attacking him with. And then you hear Jesus say that and they seem to be going perfectly together, do they not? Seems like Jesus is almost saying the same thing that they're saying. Where is God in all this? And then Jesus cries out, where are you? And he quotes Psalm 22. But I want you to think about this for a second, about what's really happening. Psalm 22 is a very famous passage. It's a messianic psalm that talks about the Messiah. And Jesus is quoting it. And he's quoting it with the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees around. And they would have known this passage. They would have had it memorized. It would be like if you grew up in the church today. I'll give you an example. It would be like if you grew up in the church today and I say, Our Father who art in heaven, where does your mind go? Hallowed be thy name. You start to go through the rest of it. Or, or maybe if you grew up in the south, you grew up around here, and somebody says, for God so loved the world, right? John 3.16, we know, right? You grew up going to VBS, and immediately your mind starts to fill in the rest of it. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The religious leaders around would have known Psalm 22, and their minds would have immediately start to go towards that. 
And as you start in on Psalm 22, it does sound like Jesus is crying out in agony that God has forsaken him. And you read those first couple of lines and that's what it says. And so what is happening here that Jesus cries out in the way that he does? And I think there's two parts of it. I think the first part is that he's crying out in agony. He's crying out because for the first time in all eternity, Jesus is separated from the love of the Father. The Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that he made Jesus, the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when Jesus goes to the cross and the darkness falls and what's happening in that moment is that God has allowed Jesus to take on the sin of the world. To be he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And in that moment, as Jesus hangs on the cross and darkness falls, as God allows him to take on the sin of all those that would put their faith in him. And now instead of having the perfect joyous love and harmony and unity that he's had with the father from all eternity. He looks at the father and it's now the wrath of God coming down on him as he bears our sin. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? It's in agony. It's in a moment where he's feeling forsaken. It's in the moment where he's feeling the most awful thing that will ever be felt ever as he bears the weight of all the sin of the world and he knows the horror of it and then he begins to take the wrath of God for it. Jesus is literally going through hell. The wrath of God being poured out on him. And so in this moment, it is a cry of anguish. It is a cry of pain and horror and all that goes with it. But he does so, so that we can be forgiven. He chooses to do so. But this is where the onlookers totally miss what's happening. Although this is a cry of agony, it's not a cry of unbelief. It's not a crisis of faith. It's not, where are you, God? I don't know what's going on. It's Jesus calling back to Psalm 22, a passage that he knows every word of it, that God inspired a thousand years before, that tells exactly what would happen in that moment. All the way through. And so Psalm 22, oh my God, I cried day by day, but you do not answer, and I may, and by night, but I find no rest. But then listen to what it says in verse three. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Psalm 22, verse six. But I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Do you hear what it says? Do you see what it says right there in Matthew chapter 27? And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads at him. If you trust the Lord, come down. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water 
and all my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. It's exactly what's happening. The first half of Psalm 22 walks you straight through the suffering servant, the Messiah that is to come, how he will be crucified. It says the dogs encompass me. Did you know in the first century that the Jews referred to the Romans as dogs? Because they were Gentiles and they were unclean and they didn't follow the cleanliness laws. And so that was a common expression that Jews would use for Gentiles, particularly for Romans. And it says, the dogs encompass me and they pierce my hands and my feet. And so as you read through and you go through Psalm 22, you see the entirety of this thing that God inspired a thousand years before. And when Jesus quotes it, he knows the whole of it. And I can't help but wonder the religious leaders that stand there and know the passage and start to work through it in their mind if they didn't see If some of them couldn't see what was happening in front of them. But here's the thing I want you to understand is Jesus is quoting this. And as he's saying this, he knows this and he knows what's happening here. And it's not a cry of unbelief, but it's a cry of faith. Because do you know what the second half of Psalm 22 says? Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword and my precious life from the power of the dog. Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform by those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember to turn to the Lord and the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even to the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations that shall come and proclaim the righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Jesus' cry is a cry of faith. He knows exactly what's happening here and he's believing that God's plan is coming to fruition and him laying his life down and he knows that that's the case. And when he quotes Psalm 22, that's what he's saying. And I want you to think about that. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. Psalm 22 was written 3,000 years ago. And it says, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That's what we're doing here today. That's why we're gathered in his name today. And Jesus knew that in that moment. It wasn't a cry of unbelief. 
It was a cry of faith that he knew exactly what he was doing and what he was purchasing and what he was bringing to fruition for us. And so when the watching world thinks that it's all falling apart and that they're right and they've been vindicated and that's not what's true, Jesus stands in the middle faithfully knowing that it's exactly what God planned. And so look at the very last part here. Verse 30 of John chapter 19. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, he breathed his last He said, truly, this man was the son of God. And so I want you just to think about that for just a second. What Jesus says there. So he starts with Psalm 22 and all these things happen. And then it gets to the end and he says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. You know, the last line of Psalm 22 says, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You know, very literally what that says, if you go and you look at the original language of what it says there in Psalm 22, it says that it will proclaim to a people that's yet unborn that it is finished. And Jesus cries out, it is finished. And he gives up his spirit and he dies. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down on his own accord and he does. And he lays it down and then Mark tells us in verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain was the the curtain that hung between the most holy place, the holy of holies and the holy place inside the temple. And it separated the very presence of God from his people because we can't come that close to him because of our sin, because of the separation, because of our rebellion and our sin against him. And when Jesus bows up his head and he says it is finished and it's done, the temple is torn, the, the curtain is torn. And we now have access to God in fullness that we were created for through what Jesus has done. And so I want you to think about the last thing I want you to see here is what he says to the criminals that are there with him on the cross. Luke chapter 23, one of the criminals who hang there railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. But the other rebuked him. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. As Jesus finishes the work, he finishes it so that he can do exactly what that guy articulated and not even knowing it. He says, we're dying here. For what we did and what we deserve, but this man's dying even though he doesn't deserve this. Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Because of what Jesus has done for us. What's really happening on the cross is Jesus is going to take our place to do what we could never do for us so that we can come into his presence for eternity because of what he has done. And even though the world looks at it and thinks this isn't working and he's losing and this is all, that's not what's happening. It's the exact opposite of that. It's by his grace, by his laying down his life for us, by his bearing the wrath of God on our behalf and then giving us his perfect life by grace through faith that we are saved. That's what's happening. 
That's why we still gather in his name and proclaim what he's done. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you chose to take our place. That you willingly laid down your life for us, that we could have forgiveness. Lord, when we read these stories and we see the insults and the attacks, and in the midst of that, that you continue to pray for our forgiveness, uh, remind us that we are so often just like those around. That we ignore the things that you tell us, but yet you continue to pursue us. That you give us your righteousness, that you continue to change us from the inside out. And it's all because of what you've done for us. Help us to see that afresh today. Lord, we pray that we would live in light of the glory of your forgiveness and your grace and what you've done for us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.